0: In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. This episode was recorded over a month ago. My apologies for that. Russell got married and went to Mexico for his honeymoon. So, if you're upset about the lack of episodes lately, it is totally Russell's fault, and not mine in any way. With that out of the way, this episode is really awesome. We invited Marty back on the show to clear some things up, and he was even kind enough to take some audience questions. If you have any question as to whether or not D.B. Cooper survived the jump, then you have to read Marty's book, Finding D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead in America's Only Unsolved Skyjacking. It's one of three books everyone should have in their D.B. Cooper collection. Enjoy this episode with my good friend, Martin Andrade. All right, Marty, last time we had you on the show was about a year and a half ago. What's changed in the last year and a half?
1: Well, for <laughs> that's open-ended. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, I, is. I got engaged. Um, you know, I, I got a new job, uh, much better hours, much more high-stressed. And the pay is about the same as my previous job. But a lot of personal changes I moved. And one of the reasons why we had a problem today is because all of my stuff is in storage. Because, you know, when you get engaged and you get married, it goes from your stuff and her stuff to her stuff and our stuff. So all of what used to be my (laughs) stuff is just locked away in storage. And I had a mad dash to try to find the uh, microphone, a microphone that I use was Zencaster and I could not find it. And I tried, I have this old M audio microphone that I did with podcasts about 15 or 16 years ago, back before the word podcast existed and it didn't function with a, uh, with, with my laptop. So uh, have to go with this plugin for my phone. Hilarious. <laughs> I'm sure you're I'm sure your listeners though want to hear stuff about
0: Cooper. No, they just want to hear intimate personal details about your life, Marty.
1: So today I had to order <laughs> some Marvin windows and I've been to this place like 5 or 6 times and I've measured the these people just cannot decide on what color hardware they want on their windows and I'm just I'm going like I'm now at the point where I've spent so much time with them that I am neglecting my other contractors. And I'm thinking I'm not, I should just pass this along to somebody. So I, I'm thinking about calling a competitor or a competing lumberyard, giving them their phone number and saying, have at it.
0: Yeah. They shouldn't be wasting your time when you have DB Cooper to think about.
1: I know. I
0: know. Well, you were just on another, another radio show after hours AM. And I really enjoyed it by the way. I'd recommend everyone check it out. But one of the things you said in that that I just loved so much was the guy brought up, hey, you know, I know someone who skydives, and he's really particular about his gear. He wouldn't just use a random parachute. And, you know, you said right away, you know who does use whatever gear they're given? Military guys. They don't check for it. They're not going through it. They're not the ones who packed it. It was what they were given, and they jumped with it.
1: Yeah, that that is you see that everywhere in military culture, and I was not in the military, my dad was, and that is just what they do. They they're given a piece of equipment, they figure out how it works, and they use it. And I think that that is very indicative of who DB Cooper was. In those hijackings, I was thinking about this after that podcast or after that radio appearance. That uh, you know we have the we can look at the Cooper copycats and and figure some things out. So in the Cooper copycats, you basically have two kinds, right? You have the complete amateurs who jumped with the parachutes they were given, and that would have been Frederick Hanneman and McNally, or yeah, Martin McNally. And then you had the other, the professionals the had, you know, McCoy and Hetty who brought their own equipment. So that, I think that's indicative of, uh, Cooper was either a complete amateur, and I doubt that just because he seemed like a pretty cool customer and okay with jumping out the aircraft. Uh, or he was, uh, you know, a military professional who was accustomed to using equipment that was not his.
0: Well, Tina Mucklow said as she was going into the cockpit, it looked like he had put that parachute on many times before.
1: For sure. And we're all, we've all been trying to figure out. So in Richard Tussauds' book, I, I love how we can just jump right into Cooper's stuff, right? We don't have to talk about the case at all. We can go, we can dive right into the minutia. I love that.
0: Oh, me too. Anytime I read anything about D.B. Cooper, I just skim right through the hijacking part. Yeah. I don't even read that stuff anymore. I don't listen to it. I skip right past that.
1: So, getting right into the minutiae, Richard Tusa, who is the only journalist who ever interviewed Tina Mucklow at, at length. And Tina Mucklow, at least in the book, says that Cooper checked the packing cards. Now, there's a lot of question about that. Uh, I personally don't believe... Um, that he did check the packing because I have I have one of these parachutes that we've talked about before, and I cannot I know there's a packing card in it. I've even talked to Mark Metzler about it, and I told Mark to not tell me where it is, but to give me a hint, and I still can't find that stupid packing card. But Mucklow says that he checked the packing card. Now my father, who was a co-author on the book, and he was a, a, a trained at Fort Benning as a paratrooper. He showed me what he would do with a parachute of, I guess, unknown origin. How would he check a parachute to make sure that it was operational? Now, he, he moved a couple of flaps. He he put it on. He adjusted it. Uh, he checked to make sure that the ripcord was attached to uh, the parachute. And I think that's what Cooper did. So I think Tina Mucklow saw him check the parachute and then just assumed, either probably from some kind of, um, you know, what would you call it, uh, cross... Uh, Cross contamination from the other people the FBI was talking to. That he checked the uh, the packing card, but I think he just did a check, and that that kind of fits if you ignore the Tucson book because we really don't know what Tina said in these interviews with Richard Tusa. Uh She just said that he put on the parachute comfortably and and instantaneously, and this was one of the things I did to my dad, and. As I gave him I gave him this parachute, this Navy parachute, and he was in the Air Force, and he was able to put it on within seconds. He was able to put the parachute on before I could set the timer on my phone. That's how long it took him to if you look at your down your phone, you're like, oh, I better press the start button. And you look up and that my dad has the parachute on and adjusted. Cooper that was about how Cooper was described as as putting on the parachute, which means that he had he was just as far as I'm concerned, that indicates that he was professionally trained in some capacity to wear this equipment, uh, but not necessarily as a, as a skydiver.
0: That's a good point. And I think his age says a lot about that too. You know, if you go with the fact that he's in his mid to late forties, probably wasn't a sport parachutist at that point. I mean, especially in 71, how many 40 to 60 year old dudes were skydiving for fun.
1: It had it had to have been close to zero, and we know and we now know thanks to all of these FBI files, which are the big thing in the case. Now has been the, these FBI files. We now know from these FBI files that they looked at every parachutist in the country who had a, a you know a USPCA card or a United States Parachuting Association card. So they they looked at all those guys and those parachutes back then. They gave a hard opening and a hard landing. It was tough on your body physically. Today. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember this, but George H.W. Bush, the former president, was still skydiving in into his, into his 80s. So that was – and I think he had a solo jump after his um, – I think he had 10 even after his presidency. So not hard landings with the modern equipment, but if you watch – I think this is one of those great things. You can watch on YouTube – uh, in search of, you know, that Leonard Nimoy show from the '70s, and you'll yeah. see a young Earl Cosse parachute, and he has this hard landing. He has to do this little rollout uh, to handle all the weight, and he was a little guy. He wasn't a big guy, so it it is uh tougher. It was it was a, a it was a tougher physically um, pursuit, or I guess a pastime than it is today.
0: Definitely. And you didn't see men that age in extreme sports at all. I mean, now I can drive down the street and I see a a 50-year-old dude on a skateboard. That's not unusual. But in 71, that kind of lifestyle was pretty rare.
1: The culture is way different now than it was then, for sure. I don't think... And I think because uh, back then... Oh, I'm going to venture into dangerous territory here i hope you don't mind cancel culture but back then you did have a lot of single providers a lot of men provided for their family and their physical health was related to their to their economic health so if they injured themselves skydiving they wouldn't be able to go to work at the ford factory for instance and then they'd be in a very difficult position to su- to support their family so i think I totally that was agree with that. that was part of it too not that genders exist, because I don't wanna oh my goodness. Don't wanna get into that. Dangerous territory, my friend. Dangerous territory.
0: Another big find definitely. Well we'll just blow right past that. <laughs> uh but another big finding in the last year has been the diatoms on the bills. What are your thoughts about that? What does that tell you, Marty?
1: So I have had the worst I would say the the worst couple of months since that that paper was published by Tom and and Mark. And their findings are pretty simple. They found some diatoms. These diatoms would only exist or would only be be flourishing at a certain time. That time is separated from the jump. That time is separated from uh, the dredge operation in August of 1974, which means that we can now have an estimate as to when the money hit the sand, and you think that's that's pretty easy. But from uh, from Tom K's other research, we know that the money will fan out in the water and then sink in about fifteen minutes. So you take fifteen minutes of flow, right? How far would the money travel in fifteen minutes before it sank into the into the silt? And say so that's where the money must have at least broken free from the bag uh, and had to have been in shallow water. And if you do that, you don't really get anywhere. It's still in a spot where it shouldn't be. The money is still not where we would expect it. And it destroys, I think, all of these theories about planting the money or burying the money on Tina Barr. Because you have to have have time for the money to fan out and to grab those diatoms between the bills. That was an important part of Tom K.'s finding. Is the money fanned out, um, so it would have to be in the water floating. And the maximum time it can do that is 15 minutes. It gets those diatoms, closes up, gets into the sand somehow, and um, becomes part of whatever beach it happens to be on. Uh, and th- but then what? But then what? So I don't know what, I just don't know what to do with it. And I've, like I said, this ruined uh, my, my DB Cooper hobby for the last few months is thinking about this stupid thing. And I've said this before in other podcasts. The Tina Bar money is a piece of garbage. Okay, if you go on a beach and you find it, go on a beach along the Columbia River or the Mississippi River or wherever you happen to be, and you find a piece of garbage and you ask, where did this garbage come from? It would be very difficult for you to to trace it back. Like, okay, I found this can. This can uh, had to have come from this campsite and it was, you know, thrown into the river by some guy two years ago. That's how long it would take to get here. And the, the FBI, by the way, was trying to do that. And they had a couple of cans they thought were unique enough where they could figure out where it entered the water and possibly where the money entered the water. And it obviously didn't go anywhere. But you're trying to, with a Tina Bar money fine, you're trying to figure out how a piece of garbage got on a beach on a river. And I think it's just, at this point, it has to be a fool's errand. Uh, and I have my own theories, and perhaps I'm the only guy who still thinks that uh, some form of the washdown theories is still viable, but that's as far as my thinking takes me.
0: Yeah. The, the Tina bar money is just so baffling. It doesn't make any sense. And I, I talked to Tom K about those diatoms on the show and I pressed him on. Does this find say to you that Cooper survived the jump? And his question was, or his answer was, I think that's, uh, that question's totally irrelevant to my findings. And I was just like, God, that's such a Tom thing to say, (laughs) Mm -hmm. to not answer my question. It's just like, I want there to be some sort of evidence with this. And it just seems to add more question.
1: So the problem with Tom's finding is the money has to get out of the bag. So the money inside the bag is compressed. I don't, I uh, mean, okay, we the, the money was found away from the bag, right? So, and the rest of the money. So, at some point, this bag ripped open, the money fell out. The fact that uh, if the if it had been in the bag for eight or nine years, it wouldn't have been able to fan out. It would have been just some soggy chunk of stuff, and we wouldn't have found. We wouldn't have probably found the money. Certainly, Tom would not have found the diatoms. So my thinking is that if it has to be in the spring, you look at the spring floods. 1972 spring floods are the obvious um, event to look at because, again, these diatoms were only there in, I think, June. So May, June, perhaps a bit of July. But, but I think June was a date that he had really um, concluded on. So it, the money is, is fresh, fresh-ish, you know. Um, the bag rips open about 15 minutes of drift time away from Tina Bar, so that puts it near Caterpillar Island. It does. I think the only theory that kind of survives this, and I know I'm going to catch flack for this, is you know Robert 99's theory, or R99's theory, that the money that Cooper landed on uh, Caterpillar Island, uh, and that's that's where he you know died. Uh, As a no pull with a western flight path, the problem being, of course, the fact that everybody they were tracking this plane with more than one radar system, with the best radar system in the country at the time, and with devoted crews, and that you had chase planes that knew where this thing was, and you had air traffic controllers who were not military men who knew where this thing was, and they they all say the same story, and they all put it right down the center of uh, Victor Twenty Three. I don't I don't know. Then what you can do with it, other than say maybe Richard Tussauds' theory is is still good. I don't know. Um, I obviously believe that Cooper survived the jump. I've, I'm on record as saying that. But it's it is bewildering that I think the problem is trying to fit the evidence to a theory, and rather than letting the the um, the evidence produce a theory. So I think all we all we can say for sure is that the money exited the bag that it was probably 1972 the spring floods and the bag ripped open about 15 minutes of drift time away from away, away from Tina Bar and that's
0: that why do you think no other money has come up
1: i think most of it was lost and while i i do have some speculation as to how the money how part of the money could have been uh could have been recovered not necessarily recovered, but how Cooper could have kept half the money and lost half the money. I really believe that uh, the bulk of the money was lost. That the bag ripping open again—fifteen minutes of float time away from Tina Bar—the bag rips open. Most of that money is just along the bottom of of the river. It continues on its way, and it is long gone in the Pacific Ocean by now. So that's why the money just didn't wasn't found. Is that whatever event got that? You know, those that the the money on Tina Barr destroyed the rest of the money.
0: All right. Did you hear my uh, interview with Arthur Friedberg? Yes. Yes. That one it really changed a lot for me because until that, I had thought he could have just gone around spending the money and it wouldn't be an issue.
1: So I and I really disagreed with some of the things that he said. Uh, I think he's abusing probability theory in saying that. A twenty-dollar bill from Cooper's hijacking, had it been in circulation, would have appeared in—I forget the phrasing that he used—but that it 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 would have gotten into one of these police
0: flagged cash transactions.
1: Right, a flagged cash transaction, and I—I personally don't believe that's true. In, and I only say that because I don't think that the technology existed for every. Every one of these these flag transactions to be checked against the Cooper money, and, and for that matter, for every one of these flag transactions to be checked against every ransom of uh, of the period and even before. So I I think that's highly unlikely when you have people doing this stuff by hand that they have they'd have to have a library of numbers that they'd have to check by hand because I don't think the technology existed to do these things. Uh, electronically which you could do now you could just scan you know dollar bills in by the tens of thousands and check check the numbers against uh five transactions and be able to find a needle in a haystack but i i don't know that for sure cuz i don't know how intense the procedure was for these transactions so i you have to go with the expert's opinion on this and that's fine i don't have any uh i don't have any need for D.B. Cooper to escape with the money. Like that's not part of my ideas or my suspect or my theories. Uh it he he could have very easily lost the money, as uh the Tina bar tends to show.
0: Yeah, I think it's definitely possible he he lost the money, or or at least some of it. But uh now I, I lean more towards the fact that it was never spent now than before before I always fantasized about him, you know, like being on an island drinking a pina colada.
1: I think we all kind of wanted that to be the case, but i just I just don't think when you go back to the original description that Tina Mucklow gave that Cooper was using Paracord and he was uh trying to tie it to his harness, and he was attempting to do he was attempting to to keep the money but when you calculate the forces involved in an opening, so if Cooper opens the parachute, there is. And I forget what my calculation was, but there was a lot of force uh, in an event like that. And I I think the money would have just ripped right off of his harness uh, had he opened the parachute. So that it doesn't bother me at all. I I, this was one of the tests that I wanted to do is I wanted to get a couple of paratroopers, guys trained by the military, which matches the background that I that I think Cooper had give them however many feet of paracord the Cooper had and tell him tie this bag of paper to a parachute harness. Then you throw a bunch of um throw a bunch of mannequins out of a helicopter or something, pulling the ripcord and seeing whether or not the money stays on. And I I don't think it would in most cases, but I that's something that my father, my co author, disagrees on. He he says with certainty that he could have created something to attach that money to the harness and not lost it
0: and he would know right because he's done it exactly
1: yeah 30 or 40 times as he tells me
0: (laughs) but why didn't if he let's say he loses all the money he pulls the ripcord and the money just goes flying why is it we've only found that much money why weren't other packets found why didn't somebody find a bank bag on, on caterpillar island filled with cash
1: and if you look, Caterpillar Island back then wasn't it was about half the size and it was very sandy. So I don't think uh, I think can I use names? Shutter at the uh, DB Cooper Forum. He has posted pictures of Caterpillar Island around 1970-71. and there's only a little patch of heavy foliage. So if it had landed on there, that more than likely would have landed on a sandy beach. It would have been very obvious to see. So that that to me doesn't necessarily make sense. I think people have searched Caterpillar Island, and this was this was another thing that I wanted to do. And I, because I, uh, I was asked by a television producer, "What is the science?" Because you know science is big right now. What are the science sciencey things? that we can do with this case. And I said, one of the easiest things to do is run some cadaver dogs on Caterpillar Island. Cadaver dogs can find stuff, can find uh, human remains that is buried. They can find little pieces of human remains. They can do incredible things. So that would be just a very easy thing to do for a couple of days of shooting and get some footage.
0: Will a cadaver dog find someone that died 50 years ago?
1: They can find people that died 500 years ago. They have... Examples of cadaver dogs finding uh, bone fragments, where there is no uh, no soft flesh or um, you know the little the little bits of us that we really appreciate versus the hard bits of us that just keep us walking around. That's crazy. Yeah, they're really remarkable animals, and I really wish that we had done. I wish we had. I you know I wish for a lot of things, and I I wish those people would buy those stupid Marvin windows and pick a color for the hardware already.
0: What else do we need to do to solve this?
1: So, and I, uh, so the the frustration in the Cooper Worldwide right, right now is people like me, the suspect peddlers, right? I I have my own ideas and I want to push those ideas uh, at least to the point where, where they're falsifiable. But we have a lot of suspect peddlers and we have guys that say, it has to be this person, it has to be this person, it has to be this person. I think that all of those people are out. And while I think that I have a falsifiable theory, uh, I I don't know exactly what we can do with it. Because from a broader epistemological standpoint, what level of evidence will be required for every, not even everyone, but let's just say 75% of the Cooper world to agree that somebody is D.B. Cooper? And right now, the only way to get that kind of agreement would be for someone to produce a DB Cooper 20 or the parachute or something, and I believe those things are gone. I think those are long gone. So we'll never hit that that um, that evidentiary mark, that, that level of knowledge that we would need to solve the case. And that's, that's tough for me to admit, because I, I think I've been optimistic, and I have said on other podcasts, I've said on your podcast, that I believe the case is solvable. And I still believe the case is kind of. I want to. So we'll we'll go ahead and qualify that it is kind of solvable, in the sense that we could find a picture of somebody that looks like DB Cooper. We could get their background and it would match what we're looking for. That he would he would have the means, the motive, and the opportunity to do uh, the hijacking. And we might have some other piece of evidence that we could link him to, like photo matching the tie. And I think that's what That's what people would want at this point. Would be to photo match the tie. The tie had that that pearl clasp, and now thanks to Tom K, found you know thirteen, fourteen years ago that there was another pin mark on that tie. So we're looking for that clasp and uh, another tie tack that would be in a certain place on the tie. So if we can photo match the tie with somebody that looks like Cooper that has the background that we want in industrial chemicals. Or something similar, where they he'd be exposed to those uh, those particles. We could really get most of the way there. You will have people who will never, though. They will never admit that we solve the case, and and those people are the are the suspect peddlers, the people like me. I'm including myself in this, who have books, who are making money off of these books, who um, I don't want to say rely on, but that it's a nice check when it comes in. It's a nice check. And I i realize that if the case was solved, people would lose interest and that check would disappear. So I think for a lot of us, not solving the case is actually better. But I'm not saying I want that. <laughs> I'm not saying I want that. Uh if DB Cooper is Sheridan Peterson, I want to know. If DB Cooper is uh well I, I think Sheridan's the only viable suspect, quite frankly. But if DB Cooper is somebody else, I would want to know. So I'm definitely open-minded. I I I am not a hundred percent convinced that it is Max Gunther's uh, Dan LeClair, but I'm definitely uh, interested in finding out who the real one is. But I don't know if you're, you you know you can name one of those guys name name a book author, and I don't think you will ever get them to say that their guy is not D.B. Cooper.
0: All right, I want to bring up something you mentioned. If you could find someone who matches the tie. And could produce chemicals on the tie. What about James Klansnick? Sure. It's reasonable that a lot of those chemicals would be on Klansnick's tie. He's seen working on aircraft, wearing the tie.
1: Sure. You work from, so you work from a few things. I think, and I'm not a police investigator, but means, motive, and opportunity. So did the individual have the means to commit the crime? Did they have the motive to commit the crime? And did they have the opportunity? So, and that's the first step. Just because somebody has the means, the motive, and the opportunity does not mean it's their guy. But at least it gets you close. With Klansnik, does he have the means? Yes. He he jumped out of a B-17, military trained. He would have been comfortable jumping out of an airplane. The guy seemed uh, seemed like a mensch, right? He had he had the background. He also knew about the 727. There's no one who doubts that. So. The means is there. He had the means to do it. He probably had the knowledge. He was a smart guy. He would have known that the aircraft could be jumped. And I think there, boom, he has the means. Does he have the motive? And this is what I have mentioned before uh, on Klasnik, is that he appears to lack a motive. He had a good job. He had a family. He had everything to live for. And as we discussed earlier, these guys guys just didn't do that back then they weren't there wasn't these 50-year-old men or however old Klansdick was who were just adrenaline junkies Klansdick had a family he had a wife to support he had a good job he didn't lose it i don't see a motive for it now opportunity and this is when we get in trouble with the other investigators the other people one of whom that you've interviewed is that i think we've lost the chance to talk to the family about whether or not Klansnick had an opportunity to commit the crime, because the crime happened the day before Thanksgiving. Klansnick had a family. He had a wife. They would have known, hey, where is he? (laughs) Why (laughs) why has he been gone all evening or all night the day before Thanksgiving? How come he has a cut on his eye at the Thanksgiving table? Just, it would have been a... And I don't know exactly how I've I've thought about how to approach a family. If I find my suspect, how am I going to uh, approach their survivors and say, Hey, I think hey, I think that uh this guy, you know, Dan LeClaire or whomever is D B Cooper. How would I do that? And I I I just don't know. But I do know that when it came to the Klansnick family, it was done wrong. So we we have we don't have the opportunity really to say whether he had the opportunity, but means, motive, opportunity, we are one for three on that. And even if we ignore the opportunity part, we're one for two because he does not have a motive. So that's how that's where I would end the Klansnik idea. Is you just have to get past the lack of a motive.
0: But you also mentioned Sheridan Peterson is one of the only suspects you find reasonable. Why Sheridan?
1: So Sheridan had he was a smoke jumper and uh, they would he would have been very comfortable jumping into that particular wilderness. Sheridan had... So he he had all of the background that we want, and he, he worked at Boeing. He was he was in the technical manuals department. He could have been exposed to those particles uh, at some point when he was at Boeing. And we're not sure... And this is a Tom K. question. We're not sure exactly how many of those particles were actually there at Boeing. Tom tends to think not. And other people have come back and said, well, yeah, they they could have been uh, at a Boeing facility at some point before the hijacking. So I don't know. That's a question mark. I think Sheridan, so the means, yes. Uh, He had the knowledge, yes. Um, He he could have done it easily. Motive, I think with him, with Sheridan, uh, there's another, there's a motive problem because he was an anti-war activist. He certainly would have made some kind of statement saying, hey, I'm taking this money and this is for all those people out there and wherever who think that we can continue to to fight this illegal war in Vietnam or something along those lines. He would have made a political comment because I don't think he's done anything in his life that has not had some kind of political statement behind it. And that goes – That's a really good point. That goes for his book. That goes for when he ran for office, his anti-war activities. Uh, his his entire life has been this philosophy, and, and trying to, um, to make amends for what he saw in Vietnam. So the motive really isn't there because I don't think that he needed the. I mean, he may have needed the money. I don't know. He was out there in Nepal, so maybe he needed a small cash of money to keep surviving out there because he was worried about being coming back to America. And so the, the motive part is a question. Because the obvious motive would be his political beliefs and then maybe the money. With Cooper, we know the motive was the money. That's what he wanted. He was excited when he got it. He was waiting for it. This was his prize. And I just don't think Sheridan Peterson is like that. Now, opportunity. And this is where I think the FBI has eliminated Sheridan Peterson, as I'm sure he just pointed to his passport and said, look, I was in Nepal. I didn't leave Nepal for this period of time. Uh, this is my this is my my passport. You can see plainly that I was not in the country, and that would be killer, right? That that ends uh, an interrogation. If you say, "Look, I could not have done it because I wasn't on the continent," and um, while well, it would be nice, because Sheridan Peterson's the last guy that can pull out a twenty out of his pocket and say, "I was D.B. Cooper. Here's what happened. I landed in this part of uh, part of Washington State." and i took this route here and i buried my parachute here but i don't think he's he's not db cooper so uh we're not going to get that story unfortunately and it that's something that we all kind of want to know but i don't think i just don't think that he fits in uh means motive opportunity we're missing the opportunity we're we're getting the wrong motive and there's a lot of guys out there who have the means. Like that's that's something that's been frustrating with this case is that the more we look for people who have the means to do this, you know, guys with a lot of, um, I don't want to be sexist, but um, you know, guys that just had had that courage to do it and um, who are just naturally physically courage, uh, physically brave. There are a lot of them. There are just a ton of them out there. So it's not it's not a good way to to get rid of suspects at least at least the ones that we have now
0: yeah it, it's hard with suspects especially with how much time has gone on now that how difficult is it to find a guy who was 46 years old in 1971 who drank and smoked and was in the military at some point i mean it was all those dudes it was all of them and you have two sketches the descriptions are a little bit or the t- two sketches look a little bit different and the description is very generic. It's most men of that age,
1: as long as they're tall enough. <laughs> <laughs> so they got to be five ten and, and taller. Or no, but they were wearing you know high heeled shoes and they had lips in and, and stuff like that. If you look at the sketches, because to me the sketches look like a little guy. It doesn't. I, I, I'm not immediately. And that's that's the problem with the sketch, in my opinion, is. Cooper, if Cooper was actually five foot, 11, six foot, he was a taller, taller man. To me, the sketches look like a, a, a smaller man. And maybe this is because I personally am a large, robust individual. Uh, I don't, I think that's where the sketches go wrong, is they don't give an idea of how imposing he must have been and how tall and how, that he was, um, he was larger. I mean, he was thin. Okay. He was a medium to thin to light build but that he was tall and he he probably had a presence, right? A tall person kind of has a presence when you have to look up to somebody, even if they are thin and, and emaciated, like Cooper almost looks emaciated in that, uh, <laughs> that Flo Schaffner sketch, right? So you just don't get that from the sketches. You get, to me, a little guy, like a Bing Crosby, a, a dancer, someone who's short and thin and light on their feet. At least that's what I, you know, these are just the, the rantings and ravings of a lunatic.
0: No, I, I agree with you. While you say that I'm at, I'm looking at the poster. Cause I have it hanging on my wall in here, of course. And I think you're right. When I'm looking at that Bing Crosby sketch, I am picturing a smaller dude. You know, I'm not a huge guy. I'm five, seven. When i look at that picture of Cooper there, I do see him as being a smaller guy. You're right. I've never thought about that. And it,
1: and I, and I think so the, the sketches have a, a lot of problems, but I think that's one of them. And one of the reasons why the sketch never re- really produced results. The other reason, of course, is that there were eight or nine Cooper lookalikes on the plane that day. <laughs> so I, apparently everybody looked like Cooper. Apparently. There's, it's so generic. And that's – so one of the things that was in the Gunther text was that uh, this Dan LeClaire guy, this the my suspect, went to um went to college, right? And he he went uh to Rutgers. So I got all of the not not every last one, but in that certain era era from 1948 to 1953, I got all of the yearbooks and looked through all of the pictures of all of the men who graduated from Rutgers. And there are, I don't know, twenty or thirty guys that look kind of like the sketch. In every book, and every year. And that's that's like 50 or 60 really high quality matches to the sketch uh, just, just from a random yearbook or a collection of yearbooks. So when we went through, and I, and I don't know who I went through this with, I don't know, they used an anonymous email and it might have been, I don't want to claim it was anybody specific, so I won't. But we went through the entire um, archive of employees at Tektronix, and that's, I don't know, 12,000 people, 6,000 or 7,000 men. And I got so exhausted, looking because if you look at it, you're looking for a guy who looks emaciated, who's a dude who has hair. Uh, What do you do? Because you you find out of of 7,000 guys, there's, you know, seven or 800 that look like D.B. Cooper. To me, it was a total dead end.
0: Yeah, what do you do with that? You narrowed it down to 800 guys. You're supposed to start checking those off one by one. It might not even have worked there. So finding Cooper based on the sketch is just... Impossible. It's impossible. Yeah, Yeah, it's impossible.
1: Uh, And there's one, somebody actually did that. They looked at the background, at least enough to find a candidate out of Tektronic, which was Harold Fritzler, who worked in the waste disposal area He was a manager of the waste disposal area, which is just a shipping and receiving position. And he does not, in my mind, he does not look like the sketch at all. Like, if you thought of somebody who looked like the sketch, this guy was not it. But uh, people peddle him as a realistic candidate That's the point. You know, like Dwayne Weber, those huge ears, and he was heavy set. He was like 220 pounds. Uh, what's, What's the point? If everybody matches the sketch, then nobody does.
0: Do you think the two different sketches did a disservice to this? I think they did, yes. 100%. Because now you can match one sketch or the other. And you see that. How many people say their suspect matches Bing Crosby, and how many people say their suspect matches the Cary Grant one? And
1: then you have the Flo Schaffner sketch, 15 years after the fact or so, that just adds, uh, her sketch is almost comical in that it was, if you were trying to, if you were trying to to draw a sketch of Jack the Ripper this is who you would come up with somebody <laughs> yeah. this is this guy was in her mind was a real nightmare of a man i think that's the one sketch where you get kind of an imposing figure uh who looks um he, I mean, maybe he looks tired but to me he looks a little uh he does look a little bit like like just a a, a mustache twirling bad guy so I, yeah, one hundred percent. I don't think it was the right thing to do. They have to, right? You have these descriptions, you have um, eyewitnesses, you put together an idea of what he looks like. But to me, the moment that you, you know, you look at the sketch and say this guy could be anybody, you don't release
0: it. Yeah, and with with a description even that fits a lot of dudes. So yeah, it's just tough. It's a shame that we didn't have a. Like 4K video surveillance in there or something. So We'd get a good look at him.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that would help. <laughs> 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 and at this point, I really believe we could have had pictures of this guy. We could have had his fingerprints. Uh, and we still wouldn't have caught him.
0: You don't think if we knew for sure that these fingerprints belonged to Cooper, that we could get him.
1: So if you read, if you go into the FBI documents, and God help you if you do, because we're at about 20,000 pages now. The palm print that they're most confident in, if you're sitting in a chair and you put your your hands down to lift yourself out of the seat, where your palms land on the armrest, is where they got this palm print. So they're almost certain that the only guy that could have left that palm print after Cooper had sat in the chair would have been Cooper himself, the last person to leave the chair. So they have that palm print that they are really sure about because they worked really hard to get palm prints from um, from Tom Colbert's suspect um, Rackstraw, ra- yeah, Robert Wesley Robert Wesley Rackstraw. I'm getting him mixed up with Walter Reckup. Uh but Rackstraw. They worked really hard to get palm prints from Rackstraw, so they're pretty confident in that. And I know that somebody else has now found another document saying that the FBI um, had a powwow and decided that none of these prints were of any evidentiary value. So I don't know. But I, I tend to think that if they're confident enough to eliminate suspects based on that palm print, that it must be a pretty good print. Um, maybe not an inclusive one, but an exclusive one. That They can eliminate people who don't match the print. But maybe if they match up the print to somebody, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're Cooper. So I think that's the one good thing, like the one good piece of evidence that they had. And like everything else, they came up with Bupkus.
0: But even if you... If they had all of the military records and could compare that, they didn't take palm prints of those dudes. They took fingerprints. So having a palm print is a little ridiculous because no one ever takes a palm print. I've never had, I've never been palm printed, but I've been fingerprinted quite a few times.
1: I think I actually had, so I I went and got a substitute teacher's license because I I assumed I was going to lose my job with the whole covid related depression um i did not in fact the opposite happened everybody wants to buy windows now but i did get palm printed i think to get that um that teacher's license so maybe it's it's a state thing but you're right it wasn't a standard it wasn't a standard thing but once you have a suspect then you get the palm prints i think that was how that would work
0: but it's too late now most likely You know, all of the suspects pretty much are dead, except for Sheridan Peterson. So you can't get a palm print from a dead guy.
1: Uh, For the most part, no, I actually know that they've taken uh, prints off of buried, um, buried corpses. So that has happened. They've exhumed people, taken their fingerprints and then put them back in the ground. But at this point, no, you're right. hundred percent. It's not going to help us. Uh, It's just fun to talk about.
0: And then you had brought up a, one of the recent 302s coming out saying that they questioned if any of their fingerprint evidence was any good at all. I, what I'm most surprised about by a lot of these 302s is that they weren't optimistic. It was like, hey, we got nothing. We got nothing. We have nowhere to look. And then we have all these suspects that are just nonsense. You
1: can sense the frustration when you go through these documents. Now, they're very clinical, and they're very boring. There's a lot of, hey, we looked at this guy, we talked to his mom, we asked around and found nothing of value, and then you go on to the next paper. But you can tell that it was exhausting, that these guys were getting nowhere. And there is one, and I forget which one of the FBI, I wonder if I have it down in my... My little journal of Cooperness. Yeah, so FBI released number 45, Jack Scott Farmer. And this is to show you how deep into the Cooper Vortex the FBI got. Um, and I have not reread this because um, I, I want to go through that file again just to see. But from, from my original perusal of it, it sounded as if the FBI was trying to figure out if this, this Jack Scott Farmer had faked his own death. To commit this crime, if he had murdered his friend to steal his identity and then faked his friend's death in order to commit this crime, whether they both actually died and drowned and just their bodies weren't recovered, or whether it was Jack Scott Farmer and his friend were just really one person with two identities, uh, one of whom died and whose body was never found. Or, and he just goes on and on, and all of these documents there, pictures of him, and guess what? He looks like T.B. Cooper. You look at the picture.
0: Like <laughs> well,
1: I, I see why they fell down this rabbit hole, because he looks like T.B. Cooper. He has the background. He's a skydiver. Um, perhaps a little young, but certainly could have been uh, a, a potential suspect. And they're sitting there. They're trying to find a ghost. They're trying to find somebody who probably drowned, whose body was never recovered, because it happens a lot. And they fall down this rabbit hole. And you think at the end of that, whoever, I, I don't know which which case agent it was. But I think the case agent at the end of that would have said, you know what? Enough is enough. I am out of here. This is insane. I can't believe I went down that rabbit hole. And if the FBI can do it, certainly we're there. But that—that that is, to me, that was the essential story of the FBI investigation was they just got lost in the Cooper Vortex like the rest of us. And It, it actually is, <laughs> that feels kind of good.
0: It does I mean, you really see that from the start, they didn't know where to go, you know, like investigating everyone with the US PCA license. So it's like, uh well, these are guys who jump out of planes for fun. We'll just check all of them.
1: <laughs> yeah or sending guys in the Canada or and all the other things like this was uh, this was an exhaustive investigation and just to get nowhere and just over and over again. And then you have the insane people sending you letters and claiming to be D.B. Cooper and all of these ex cons who are like, get me out of these state prisons. I want to be in a federal prison where they actually serve food. That's warm. And just to go through all of that, it it must've been terrible, terrible. I would not, I, yeah, I, I would not want to be them.
0: Also in the 302s, it's kind of come out this year, the break at the Heisen store. Joe Weber brought this up in like 2014, that there was this break-in at the store the night of the hijacking. It's in the drop zone, and it's like, I want to say, gloves, beef jerky, and cigarettes were stolen, and that's it. And she brings this up in, in like I said, 2014. Everyone discredits her because it's Joe Weber. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, it's in the 302s.
1: Yeah, well, I uh, believe me because I've I've heard her I heard her say that I've had uh, a couple of very long phone calls with her. Uh, And actually, wait, I shouldn't say that. I've heard her say another thing that was in the FBI documents. I'm now now I'm now suffering memory problems. Um, She mentioned another thing about a doctor who was involved in a murder suicide or something, and that's actually in the FBI documents too. Um, She had talked to me on the phone about that. This Heisen store was on the drop zone. In 2014, I think that she. Uh, regardless, we're lucky now that we have Joe's original story. So in the latest, uh, the latest FBI release, you have a lot from from Joe Weber. She has her original story, and you get the the foundation of of the Dwayne Weber story about the trip to Portland and the nightmares about leaving fingerprints on the on the rails and things like that. It that the, the Heisen robbery was not in there. And I think that is indicative of the fact that she would, she just picked up bits and pieces here and there, but she was, you're talking to about a woman who for 20, at least 20 years, maybe 25 years worked on this every single day and called everybody. The connections she made, Ralph Himmelsbach. And I think she even knew family members from Tina of Tina Mucklow. So she was a person who made social connections easy um, or easily, then that's probably why she was a good real estate agent. Is because she was able to do that, and that was how she supported herself. So it was it was a remarkable hit, and I admit that my jaw kind of dropped when I read that. And I thought, gosh, I have to relook at Dwayne Weber of all the damn things. I have to look at Dwayne Weber again. But it, it that is that tells us more about her obsession with this case then it tells us necessarily about Dwayne Weber.
0: Do you believe that was Cooper breaking into that store?
1: We have the fortunate position now where we can look at the FBI documents, all 20,000 pages that have been released. As a whole, we can go through them, we can search them digitally, look for names, look for places, and we can make connections that the FBI couldn't make because the Heisen robbery would have been in the earliest part of this of this case, that that would have been mentioned in 1971 or 72. And another connection that we've made is the fact that a parachute was found very close to there, uh, near the Hyson Bridge, uh, between the Heisen Bridge and uh, Lucia Falls, I think there, which is not that far from the break-in location at, at the Heisen General Store. It it is the that the general store is the obvious place to go once it, it doesn't matter which way as long as you're going south you hit either a railway line you hit the bridge and you hit a road and both of those things go right to that general store so i think uh that that is in my mind a big connection but it was a connection the fbi couldn't make because these two pieces of evidence were 20 or 30 years apart and more importantly they were fifty or sixty feet of FBI documentation apart, and they didn't have these things digitized, and they, they couldn't do this sort of thing, and they had completely lost all of the human capital in, involved in the uh, in, investigation because guys would come in and they'd come out, and the new guy would be stuck with this this fifty thousand page file that he'd have to go through, and there's no way that he did. Do I believe it? I can't say that I. I can't say that I don't because I, I really believe that these two things are connected. But i got to be careful, because the evidence isn't there, and I'm an evidence guy, and uh, we might need further investigation in that area. I don't know. but I So I think you're it's... not willing
0: to speculate that it was Cooper?
1: Well, of course I want to speculate. Of course I want to say it's Cooper, because it, it also matches the Gunther text. Because in the Gunther text, uh, Dan LeClaire, or whomever it actually is, he lands near a river. He lands in a rocky outcropping of a of a small river, and he has to move um, that night. And it it matches completely where I think that Cooper, at least where the story says. So you have three connections: you have the parachute found there, you have the break in, and then you have uh, the the story in the Gunther Gunther book. So those th- those three things are an interesting group um, that are connected. So I want, I want to believe, all right, I want to believe that it was D.B. Cooper who landed in a river. He cached his, his parachute there, which was found in the 1980s and that he traveled that night, uh, South along a road or along a railway. And he stopped at the Heisen store to get some beef jerky because he wasn't thinking properly. He was probably really cold and needed some help. And the easiest way to get help is to rob a, gen, you know, a convenience store. So I want it to be true. And I'm being, I, I just don't like speculating. You know that.
0: Yeah. But if it is him that breaks into that store, then it's boom. He obviously survived the jump. And But what I find most interesting isn't that there was a break-in of a store in the middle of the woods. That I don't find that unusual. What I find unusual is what's stolen. Because if you are at that store and I've been to that store a bunch of times, no one's gonna see you. No one. So you could back your pickup truck up and load it up and drive away. But what was stolen was, you know, gloves and beef jerky. That's not to me that doesn't isn't someone who wants to break in somewhere. That's someone who needs something. Sure. No, I I need I gloves and I need beef jerky.
1: I agree I the only thing the only comment I would make is that it's likely that somebody else had needs as well that somebody else say um, some some transient who uh, was walking from say, I don't know where you'd be walking. that's tough. I'm trying I'm trying to find a story that fits and the only thing that really works is if there's a homeless person in the middle of nowhere, who's going to one of those hobo camps in, in Portland, who has to stop off for, for beef jerky. That doesn't make sense to me. So you're right. It is it is a very, very interesting piece of evidence. And you wonder, and this is the problem with the FBI documents as we have them, is we read about it, and what we don't know is we don't know where the investigation went. Like, oh, there was this robbery at, at the Heisen store. Oh, there was a guy that looked like D.B. Cooper who was at the Elsinore Paris Center who uh, was talking about jumping out of a a jet aircraft and we don't get the the finale. We don't get the results of the investigation. Like we don't know what the FBI agent who dealt with this Heisen general store thought of the whole event. Like, what did he do? Where did it go? Uh, That's something that we don't have.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. But I mean, there are so many things where I want someone to say, Oh yeah, that's proof. He survived the jump.
1: I think the, The most important piece of evidence that uh, that we have is the evidence related to where Cooper actually jumped. So we have the radar tapes. Well, we don't. We don't have them, but the FBI did, and the FBI had guys at McCord Air Force Base draw them a map, and they had the data and they looked at it more than once. We know that from the FBI documentation. So we know about where the aircraft was um, throughout the flight, and now we have a map and. We can argue as much as we want about the map, but I mean it appears to be the one that, that the um, the Air Force drew for the FBI, and we can say the plane was probably right around here at this time. The question is, how much do we know about when jump, when Cooper jumped? And I would say that our knowledge of that is actually pretty good, plus or minus I would say six miles, you know, which is what two minutes e- either way. There's there's no way, and I've looked at the calculations and I've done the math about um, 150 times or so. There really is no way to get Cooper that that jump point far enough south that he is out of that watershed. That you can't you really can't put him into the Columbia River, which is what you would need to do because just the the timing of the jump and the timing of maybe the oscillations, maybe it was the bump, maybe it was whatever. But we know about where he jumped, about when he jumped, and we know where the plane was about that time so that is to me the key indicator that he survived but it's it's frustrating then because now you have to explain how the money got in the river in the first place now we're back to the tina bar and now we're back uh in the circle of death
0: max gunther's book are you still pursuing your suspect sort of through that book
1: yeah well that's the only evidence i have i just spent the last uh, uh i spent most of the most of my free time this summer going through that book line by line again, sourcing every line. And I have a list of every single identifiable source in the book. uh, Every person he talked to, and I have a list of articles. Um, I wanted to find out because we don't have his original notes, which would be nice, but I, but I can piece together basically where he got all of the information in the book. So once I remove all of the original research that he did and toss that out, I can, I can find what I think is the core of the story, which is those conversations he had with Clara. And um, for those of you who don't know, in these conversations, we find a Cooper suspect who was French-Canadian, so that matches the Dan, the, the, um, the Dan Cooper comic book evidence. We have a guy who is a salesman in industrial chemicals. He was a salesman and a floor manager a Manager and executive in those industries leading up to the joint, uh, the um, up to the uh, uh, his disappearance. Um, you have a suspect who survives and he has the military background and he has and he matches to the Elsinore Paris Center story that we have out of the FBI documents that we didn't know about until they were released uh, a couple years ago. So we have a lot in there that has that has been confirmed. Uh, or matches evidence in some way. So the question is, Do is there enough information in there for me to find somebody using forensic genealogy and looking at the documentation that we have available on people? And it, it's a, there's a surprisingly large amount of genealogical um, sources, resources out there for somebody doing this research. So that is a long way of saying, yes, uh, I have been intensely looking at this as I believe it is, and I've said this before, it's a falsifiable um, theory. If I don't find anybody in this area, you know, in, in the New England area, who was born, um, who was in World War II, who was a paratrooper, and who was in industrial chemicals, if I don't find that guy, then the story has no evidentiary value, and um, is is therefore falsified. So... Yes, that is the majority of the work that I'm doing, is trying to find somebody who matches the information therein.
0: And how's that going?
1: Oh, it's a nightmare. So I found out, <laughs> uh, I I found out that I made a mistake. As I uh, in the book, I say that, um, I, I think I I named Dan Clare, right? Or Dan, I can't remember who it was. But I found a guy. So the the forensic. Genealog- genealogical uh, clues were that he was French Canadian, that he was from New Jersey, that he was um, you know in the military in World War II, and that his first name was Dan. <laughs> okay, so you can actually look in these in uh, these databases for somebody whose first name was Dan, who was born in French Canada, who was in the military, and the military records, by the way, are mostly gone. About 80% of those were lost in a fire, but there's still some right. out there. And whose first name was Dan, who was, was in New Jersey uh, in the census in 1940 um, and 1930. And that's how I came up with Dan Clare. Well, one of those four, and I'm not going to mention which one, because it took of uh, this intense reading of the book to find the mistake that I had made, um, where I had assumed that it was that the the datum was one way and it was the opposite. It was the other. So I had to throw out all of the work that I've done going through, I don't know, all 3000 names that I had from, from New Jersey. And I have to do it again. But the good part was I caught the error. And I think I've, I've told you that I'm not going to tell you what error I made. And it would be not difficult for somebody to come in there and figure out what mistake I made, because it's, it's now like the information is out there. I don't, The Gunther book is out there. My book is out there. All you have to do is compare the two with uh, the intensity of somebody obsessed with a case who would go through a book, or I guess in this case, two books line by line to find this error. I'm not concerned. I don't think anyone's going to do it, but I I do have a new list of people and um, I, I just have more ways to waste my time, I guess, over the next 30 or 40 years.
0: And what's your level of enthusiasm about that? Do you think you're on the right track?
1: My level of enthusiasm for this case is approaching zero. <laughs> 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 I I don't even know why I'm doing this anymore. I have become so frustrated and cynical, and I am no longer enjoying this. And um, that is a confession that I think I've made to a few other people, and now I'm guessing I'm making it to everybody. But I I, I no longer want to be in um in the Cooper world but i guess this is a a sunk cost fallacy right i've already done all of this work everything is set up where you think ah just two or three more years of research one more uh one more census and uh, we'll have that census available in 2022 one more census and i should be able to figure out whether or not i have a viable lead or not and you think gosh okay just two more years two more years of this, and then I can quit. Um, And those are the words of an addict who is about to start a 12-step program.
0: I've heard that same thing from a handful of other people in the the Cooper Vortex. I've even felt the same way myself. You know, I've been harassed a few times. I've had criticism I didn't feel was warranted. And I'm like, why am I even doing this to myself?
1: Yeah, you do invite... Now I'm lucky. I'm lucky in the sense that uh I work in an industry. Um with <laughs> I I was almost going to insult uh the people I work with. But I, I work in a pretty tough, rough and tumble industry, so I have to have thick skin. Uh when you're when you're selling windows, my friend, that is that is a tough, tough world right there. Uh that is pretty mu- that's pretty close to running a casino trying to sell windows. But um Yeah, I I I, I just don't answer my emails anymore. I get questions from people. I get contacted, and if you want to get a response from me, you you basically have to say I am offering to do this for you, and I've only had one of those emails, and it almost kind of worked. I got contacted by somebody who heard my podcast, and she was an artist. And she was going to put because uh, one of the things in the Gunther text is that uh, the Gunther suspect wore glasses, so he took his glasses off for the hijacking. And we also know that at least Alice Hancock thought that the sunglasses Cooper wore were prescription. Well, that that's another interesting match with the, with the book uh, that Gunther would not have known about. But just to put regular glasses onto the the Cooper sketches. And she was an artist and she kind of did it. And I have a couple of her pictures and then she ghosted me. I have no idea what happened to her. I don't know if I can use what she gave me, which was incomplete but at least interesting, cuz it does. Glasses completely change the sketch. Completely changes the way you see the face. And that that was it. All right, that was she opened with I want to help you. What can I do? I'm an artist. And she delivered something for me, and I am thankful for that. Uh, everybody else who contacts me wants something from me, and I've just had enough of it. I have just, it's it's over. No more.
0: Well, I'm thankful you still let me bully you about stuff.
1: Well, I can't get rid of you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, th- that is actually a great segue, because I asked uh, uh, the audience if they had any questions for you. And we have uh, quite a few of them. So are you ready?
1: Oh, I'm ready. Let's do this.
0: All right. We're going to start with some questions that I believe you actually saw from the mayor of Cooperville himself, Bruce Smith. And he has six questions. What is your assessment of the FBI's 45 year investigation?
1: Well, here's the thing is that the, the FBI was in the same position. They're not in the same position. The FBI was in a very Difficult situation because they were investigating a new kind of crime. And they learned so fast how to solve these kinds of crimes that they were able to arrest every single copycat fairly quickly afterwards. I think Frederick Hanneman was the one that lasted the longest because he jumped into a foreign country. So they learned quickly how to solve a crime like this. But they didn't have the tools that they needed when the crime happened the first time. So while we can look at and see all the mistakes that they made, losing the, the cigarette butts, uh, some of the infighting that Bruce has documented, I think all in all, the FBI did pretty well. They solved every other crime. So, uh, when you're when you go five for six, I mean we we all like to think that this this hijacking is special in some way, but in reality, it was just another bank robbery, and there are plenty of bank robberies that go unsolved. at least there used to be now that we have. I think it's much more difficult to get away with these sorts of crimes now. But you know, for about 150, hundred and fifty two hundred years, bank robberies were occasionally successful. Um, and you know you just keep changing, you keep updating your toolbox to solve them. So as much as Bruce wants me to go in there and badmouth the FBI, I just can't. I (laughs) I think they did fine.
0: What did they do? The second question, you kind of answered the first part of it. The second part of his second question is what did the FBI not do so well?
1: Obviously losing the cigarette butts and losing that DNA, that hurt. Uh, I think the other problem, and we talked about it at length, was the fact that they did not have continuity uh, uh, investigational continuity for the um, for the entire lifespan of this investigation. So when you have um, a piece of evidence in 1971 and another piece of evidence in 1983, and those two point towards um, a story like my Gunther text does of somebody landing in a river and at the Heisen store um, and and that's and that parachute there and everything else. They didn't have. That ability to pull those things out and say this is something we should investigate further—they didn't have a filter for uh, taking, you know, trying to find basically find the signal from the noise. They just had a lot of noise and they couldn't find the signal. And there's a lot of ways to do that now. Uh, most of them involving technology because you have to sift through all that data. Um, and that's just something that, that would come with time. So that would be the major weakness, was losing that continuity uh, in the investigation.
0: Yeah, the cigarette butts being thrown away is a bummer too.
1: Yeah, I can't believe they did that. And I, I know Mark Metzler and some of the other attorneys in the Cooper world can't believe that either, that they would just throw away evidence. Because uh, it would be I – mean, can you imagine if you're prosecuting somebody and you say, look, this guy smoked Raleigh cigarettes for 30 years and you hold up a bag, you know, a, a little baggie of cigarette butts and say, these are Raleigh cigarette butts. Uh, you know, That's just one more piece of evidence. That, that is a, 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 I can't imagine why they would throw it away. Because it, it is something that they could link to a suspect, somebody who smoked Raleigh cigarettes regularly. So it, it is uh, bewildering that they lost that piece of evidence. Or I mean, they. I think the documentation says that they threw it away. They processed it and said, "Oh, they're all like cigarette butts," and then tossed them. Uh, I, I, it beggars belief.
0: Oh yeah, and I mean, the DNA that would be on those, and then, uh, you know, if we had that, the odds that this thing would be solved, like the Golden State Killer case, seems pretty high in my mind.
1: Yeah, you have guys that I'm sure Tom K could do this. He's got he's got the resources. You throw that the DNA sequence into that public database of of matches and you just go backwards from there at the very least we could find out where his family was. So yeah, huge, huge loss.
0: All right. The next question Bruce has got for you, uh, fingerprints. (laughs) We've already talked about most of the fingerprint stuff, but I just want to ask the question that Bruce wrote. Why do you think this is such a boondoggle?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it the fact, the fact that they had the fingerprints. Is is not a boondoggle. I, I think that they looked at it, and it is very reasonable. When you read these case files, and they talk about where Cooper's hands are, where some, where somebody's hands would have been, on the chair, and that if you if you're sitting down and you put your arms down on the armrest, your arms are going to wipe away those fingerprints. But when you lift yourself to get up, you put your hands down on the on the rest and push up. Uh, you're now putting new palm prints down. And very reasonable to say that these palm prints are the ones that you are most confident in. Uh, there's, there's, if Cooper was being careful and not touching things, yeah, that, you know, you you collect the evidence that you have, and the FBI collected the evidence that they could, and they used it uh, for years. I mean, um, Rackstraw was what 1977 uh, during his his first trial, so. It wasn't. It wasn't a boondoggle at all. That they had. They collected evidence. They had a, a hair from Cooper. Um, they had the tie. They had everything else. So they they collected what they could. Cooper was just very careful and did not leave that much evidence.
0: What was it like writing a book with your dad? So and I,
1: it it was it wasn't that different. I've written. Uh, let's see. Here before this, I've written two novels and another book. And my father had been involved in all of those books. He was raised by teachers, so he was raised in a household where he was not allowed, um, you know, to split infinitives. And he has uh, a wonderful ability to point out every single, every single mistake and error and um, uh, grammar issue in all of my writing so he has always copy edited my books and i so the fact is that he was he looked at this book anyway and the fact that he had the background that i needed the technical background that i was looking for was was just nice but i i've just worked with him for you know however many years i've been fortunate to work with him on making my english better and making my grammar better and making my book more readable so the fact that my books are even halfway decent, halfway readable, are are helped along by him. Now, when I told him that I was going to make him a contributor or, you know, going to put his name on the cover, he gave me a stack about an inch thick of of notes that he wanted in the book. So a lot of the language in the book relating to parachuting and related to the flying, the uh, the aviation part of it, are his. And guess what? After I published the book, he gave me another book. And this book was filled with about 100 post it notes of all of just additions that he wanted to make, things he wanted to say. And um, I, I couldn't do anything with it because I had to publish the book because we were trying to get on a TV show. But now, when I republish, when I do a second edition of the book, I'm going to go through all of those notes. And i to make those edits. I'm going to, to add the material that he wanted to add. And there's a lot of it. I mean, he, he's truly a co-author of the book. So it's just frustrating because he couldn't work with a computer. So everything was done by hand. Everything is written in uh, his, his fine and elegant cursive. And it just takes a lot of time to go through it. And other than that, though, it was a, an absolute joy. Um, I, I get along. just uh, He's my closest friend in the world. So I'm I'm very fortunate that I'm in that position.
0: Well, you need to get, get working on that updated book. 50th anniversary is coming up, Marty.
1: I know. And the thing is, is I was publishing, I'm in the midst of publishing another book, um, a collection of essays, poems, and reflections on the modern world. This is not, I'm not advertising this book, by the way. I do not want anyone to read this. This is just simply a, a vanity project for myself because I had, just I had a ton of writing that I had never published and hadn't done anything with. I didn't want to, I didn't want to delete it, but I don't have anywhere to put it, so I put it into a book. It's 400 pages long, and I I don't it, it's it's taken up a lot of my time. Uh, but once I publish it, I should be done by January. I could really focus in on the DB Cooper update.
0: Good. I look forward to it. And then the, the last question from the mayor is, what has been the attraction to D.B. Cooper for you and your dad? So my dad is
1: interested. My dad likes problems. So he enjoys looking at things from a technical standpoint, and he really enjoyed the parts about um, parachuting, and he because this was stuff that he hadn't talked about in 20 or 30 years since he was in the military. Uh, and he got to kind of relive that and go, we went, we just sat down and talked about our training, talked about his training in the military. And a lot of that aviation stuff, I'm not a pilot. He was, and he went through it. He was a, a pilot for United Airlines and the Air Force. He had worked on the SAGE uh, radar system. He had been, um, you know, that was part of his training, part of um, some of his commands that he had He had, had to work in that. He worked, I believe, in the military air traffic, air traffic control uh, at least for a little while. Um, I, I, you know, I catch, I catch bit, bits and pieces. He had such an illustrious career. So it's tough to listen to. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, it's, it's someone who was that successful and had um, that many experiences across the globe from the Vietnam War until um, he retired in 2004, it's frustrating to listen to. But, so he he'd had all that background and um, it's just, you know, uh, it was it was a pleasure. I mean, he's seventy five. He won't be around forever. But uh, I mean, just the way he is, he'll be he'll be one hundred and five before he he gives death a chance.
0: All right, our next question is comes from Jason P. And I like this question. Were any of the other passengers investigated by the FBI?
1: I think mean, they all the passengers were looked at. We we now have we didn't have the debriefs before from all the passengers, but we certainly do now. And we know, not only did the FBI interview these people afterwards, uh, they, they checked in on them years later. And I, I don't, because I'm investigating this case, I'm not a historian of this case, I don't pay attention to those. But uh, the guy to ask about that would be Flyjack, if you could ever get him on. Uh, he would be able to search and find those things. But I, I know for a fact that if anyone on that plane had been an accomplice of D.B. Cooper, they would have been caught. Because uh, they, they were under a microscope, and this investigation was exhaustive. They really pushed along at just every little nook and cranny they could get into, they pushed along.
0: Before I go back to the audience questions here, I just I thought of something that bugs me that I want you to definitively say is not true. Did D.B. Cooper hide on the plane <laughs> when it landed... And then once everybody else walked away, he calmly got off. Or maybe changed into some sort of FBI disguise or a pilot disguise or anything like that.
1: Oh, God. Uh, This is why I don't answer my emails anymore. So yeah, no, I get that one every every couple of months. um, Somebody says that. And you look at the evidence, right? The evidence was he put on a parachute. (laughs) He wanted out of the aircraft. He um there was a bump recorded by the pilot. There was a bump recorded on the flight data recorder. There was an investigation at at the Reno, um at, at the Reno International, whatever airport that is that is in Reno. The FBI had the entire thing cordoned off. They had dogs on the aircraft. They removed pieces of the aircraft that they thought would be of an evidentiary value, including the seat that Cooper was sitting on. Uh, there is Nowhere on that plane to hide because they were looking for the bomb, the bomb in the briefcase. They wanted to make sure it was not on the plane. So anywhere you could fit a package the size of you know, a, a Chipotle burrito was checked. The places where people say that Cooper could have hid in um, that the, the epinod, the, the tail section of the aircraft, uh, you just can't fit a body up there. It's certainly not one that can hold on. At uh, 10, 11, 12,000 feet of the planes jumping around in turbulence, there's just no way. There is no way uh, that Cooper was on that plane. And the, the, only way, the only way to tell these people that they're wrong is to tell them that they're wrong. But they, no one, that will always be with us because we, what we can't do is we can't freeze the plane in time when it landed and then just check the aircraft. And that's what, that's what they would want but there's there's no way. There's no
0: way. The other one that I get probably second most is DB Cooper never existed. It was something that the flight crew cooked up themselves and then split the money.
1: <laughs> First of all, we know that he was seen by the ticket agent, he was seen by the gate agent, he was seen by the pa- more than one passenger, but at least the one passenger we know we know of uh, Mitchell who was sitting across from him, he was, Bruce has been able to show that he might've, you know, broken up a fight between a, a couple of those cowboys that were on, on the aircraft. So there were people other than the crew who saw him. Um, and you can look at the crew means motive opportunity, right? So the motive would be the money, but they all had pretty decent jobs and they just didn't have the opportunity because they were surrounded by other witnesses. So that you have to just... And the other part about it is that it's kind of ruined their life. Uh, Flo Schaffner obviously did not appreciate being on this aircraft, and her appearance on uh, Unsolved Mysteries, you know, like more than a decade later, and that sketch that she produced of, uh, of a serial killer obviously shows that this was an emotional event for her and that that alone indicates that there's no possibility of a conspiracy i'm sure there's other evidence that i could that i could rattle off but i just i i don't even want to give them the time
0: yeah i find those so frustrating and it's i think the thing that the thing that bugs me most about it is like do you think that me and the thirty-eight other people who are talking about this case twenty-four-seven hadn't thought of that or looked at it. <laughs> yeah, Is this really a fresh idea? And there's zero evidence to support it. I mean, less than zero. There's evidence that goes against that.
1: And there's there's a lot of evidence because again, how do they how do they fake the bump? Because that's on the flight data recorder. So. There's no way they, they had the, the, the cockpit crew had good jobs and they would have no reason to risk it. And the stewardesses, maybe they didn't have as good of jobs, but they certainly um, uh, they certainly would not have wanted to risk their jobs. They, they, they're just, uh, no, I'm sorry. It, it's and ridiculous. risking
0: your job in a way that puts other people in jeopardy or at least in fear that they're in jeopardy.
1: Well, and I, and I think that, the, I mean, the, the this was, at the time, hijacking an aircraft was a capital offense. You could be, I don't think anybody was, but you could be executed for this sort of thing. So even if you're faking a hijacker, in the sense that you're telling the FBI there's a hijacker here, give him money or he'll blow up the plane, I still think that you are hijacking the aircraft so it is still a capital offense uh and the other problem is where'd the money go (laughs) there's (laughs) how did the money get on tina bar if they were searching the airplane for a bomb where didn't i mean the guys the bag of money was like 20 pounds where is it no it doesn't make sense
0: yeah and i mean from the 302s we've also learned that they looked at airline employees quite a bit and Bruce also had an article on his website, The Mountain News, recently, where he spoke to, uh, I believe, was the ex-husband of Tina Mucklow, and he said that they believed for a while that the FBI was kind of following them.
1: That's possible. Uh, I I think that the the FBI certainly would have investigated, and this goes back to the passenger question. If there was any chance that Cooper had uh, an accomplice, that at a certain point, may have been their only viable investigatory path. So, it's something that they could have done, is looked for people connected to the flight crew, people connected to passengers who fit the description and uh, had had the experience they were looking for. So, that would just make sense as part of an investigation. Because, again, the manpower, just think of the manpower involved of going through every single skydiver you know the the cards of every single skydiver on the continent at the time. Uh, think about all of the people they had to talk to and all of the manpower. So yeah, they were serious. They spent a lot of resources. This was the, I think they, it may not be the most expensive investigation now, but for the longest time, this was the most investi- This was the most expensive investigation in the history of the FBI. So they they were definitely not leaving any stone unturned.
0: I'm sure you probably don't know this off the top of your head, but how many FBI cases are unsolved after 50 years and they just close them? Like we don't know. <laughs>
1: I I definitely don't know of any high profile ones like this. Uh, I do. I, I I once looked up similar high profile crimes that were unsolved, that were kind of like this. Uh, train robberies, bank robberies, things of that nature. And there was, I, I don't have the references with me, but there was one, I think, in Japan, where a lot of money was taken from a bank. I mean, like, a lot of money. And the the police there, they knew who did it. They knew the gang that did it, but they had zero evidence. The money never turned up. Uh, they they couldn't get the the, the gang to turn on each other, and they just gave up after a while, and um, perhaps I should look that up for you and get back to you, I don't know. Again, all my stuff, I'm old-fashioned, so I write a lot of this stuff down, I don't keep it up on the computer, and good luck trying to find it in my basement right now. But yeah, there were crimes like that, just not many.
0: Alright, Bill G asks, Marty created a checklist to evaluate Cooper suspects. Maybe he could run a few of your more recent guest suspects through the checklist. What do you think about uh, Cooper being the Zodiac killer? So
1: that's, that's a negative number there. So I had, I had that checklist that I used for the longest time. Uh, you'd get, you know, a plus one or minus one, depending on whether you fit a piece of evidence. I had 26 pieces of evidence that I thought you could uh, attach to a suspect. Sheridan Peterson, he does really well. The Gunther suspect does really well. All of these new suspects are in the negative. Uh, like uh, Smith, that that new one, uh, he's in the negative. Even um, so, even other suspects, they don't like Frederick Hanneman, I I did him recently, and he had a number um, that was not that was positive, but not very high. Uh, it was like one third of Sheridan Peterson's score. So, I can't name, like, Walter Reck is a negative. I know that. Dwayne Weber had the lowest score of any suspect that I did. You know, I don't have that. It's a big spreadsheet that I have. I don't have it up on my computer. But I did do what I consider to be. Every time I get a, a serious suspect, I run them through that matrix, and there's just nothing been notable.
0: Troy H. asks, What are your thoughts on E. Howard Hunt?
1: So. I think he was pretty busy. <laughs> we can we can start on opportunity. So there's this this conspiracy theory, and uh, some major figures in the Cooper world believe this that this was an inside job that the U.S. government, the CIA, or possibly the Nixon administration or somebody wanted to increase security at airports, and that they had this Cooper hijacking. Uh, they had a military guy go in there, do the hijacking, and they got him out, and then they threw the money away, and that was who D.B. Cooper was. And they did that to get the Cooper vein, to get the new security procedures, ID required, and all of that. Problem is, there were a lot of hijackings at this time, a lot of high-profile hijackings. I mean, not only the Cooper, um, the Cooper copycats, but you had—I don't—I don't know—and I. Don't know, and the, and I I know there's even books on this, there were perhaps a hundred or more other hijackings of people taking aircraft and going to Cuba, going down to Mexico, or defecting to the USSR. So there were obvious security flaws, and it took a long time. This did not happen overnight. Nixon didn't come in there and say, hey, we can't have these hijackings anymore, I'm instituting a national, I'm going to create a national organization that's going to regulate air travel. Which, by the way, Nixon would have done. He did that with the EPA. You know, you had the Chicago River on fire, and Nixon was like, enough's enough. We're starting the EPA. And we're going to stop having rivers on fire. He was very proactive in that way. Uh, Nixon was the one who decided, hey, I don't want hunger to ever be an election issue anymore. Let's put a bunch of corn into food, make everybody fat so there's no more starvation. Uh, it, it, there's Nixon is an interesting guy. So E. Howard Hunt, getting back to the actual suspect, uh, he I looked at, I looked, he, he was busy. <laughs> he was, uh, 19, November 1971, so that would have been the first part of the, I mean, that was, at that time, you're preparing for the 1972 election, and uh, there's a lot of work that goes into a presidential election. He had, he had the means, all right, so means, motive, opportunity, he had the means. The motive is not there because these regulations on air travel took a long time. It took many years to. Because I the last hijacking, and I actually have this one up. Yeah, it, the last ones were in '72, I guess. So it just it, it it took too long. If this had been a conspiracy, they would have come down on on the airlines so fast and said, "We have to deal with this." But you don't have that. And um, E. Howard Hunt would have been involved in the the, the presidential campaign. He had other duties as a, a, a federal. I think he was a federal employee there's just there's just no way and it's fun it'd be fun to link this to a nixon plumber you know somebody involved in water <laughs> It really would right
0: it would yeah but I, I it's appealing
1: yeah the motive isn't there i don't think he had the opportunity i think his whereabouts are are pretty well documented i mean this is this is a guy that has uh some serious literature around him. I mean, there there are biographies of him so uh we we would have known it had it been E. Howard Hunt, I mean he was on television. You know, he was he was um getting grilled by Congress at some point. So we would have known
0: if wearing was sunglasses. Uh, yeah, well. <laughs> it's Bryden. Just like DB Cooper.
1: Yeah. And wearing a white shirt. And uh he had a tie on, so
0: All right. Drunken Cat on Twitter wants to know why is Eric Eulis wrong about everything?
1: Oh, harsh. So I don't want to get into any, I'm, I, and I, 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 it is so easy well, to speak I'll, Ill, I'll stop people. you right
0: there. I know you like to sling mud, Marty, <laughs> but I know Eric, he's a cool guy. And, um, you know, he posts his stuff publicly. He's, he's open to criticism and to discussing things.
1: No. And I've, I have talked to Eric. He, um, i he called me out of the blue at at some point a few years ago not a few years ago but a couple years ago uh he has been nothing but kind to me and he has he has communicated with me he has invited me to the, the the cooper conventions every year that he's had them um and I am not gonna say a bad word about him I think that he's i think that Sheridan Peterson is not dB cooper I think the western flight path is um provably incorrect but um, I, I don't want to, to, to reach in and pull up. I, I don't want to guess at his motivations. I think he, uh, I, I give people the benefit of the doubt. I think he wants to solve the case. He, he genuinely believes Sheridan Peterson and he's looking at the evidence in a way that's completely different than the way I am. So I think I can leave it at that. Uh, he's, he's, a quite the character and, uh, I, I certainly wish I had his good looks and charm. I don't, and I, you know, we're we're going to find out. I think we will find out whether or not Sheridan Peterson was Cooper definitively, probably very soon, because I'm guessing that any evidence that Sheridan has uh, will be released publicly in some way, uh, in either in his lifetime or shortly after he passes. I think that's uh, that's something that he would do. Is is you know, have, have that documentation available.
0: I agree. Eric is very handsome. No, he's a good looking right. man. I, 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 don't, <laughs> he I cannot lie. He he's is, got, he's joking. got fantastic
1: hair. I wish I had, uh, um, his, I mean, he watches YouTube videos and, and, uh, gosh, you just fall in love with the man, but.
0: <laughs> All right. Username on Reddit was deleted. So I, I apologize <laughs> if I'm uh, not giving you credit for your question here, but. Why is Tina Mucklow such an enigmatic figure in this case and among Cooperites? Why do you think she handled the crisis itself so well, compared to Schaffner especially, only to have a nervous breakdown a few years later that seemingly altered the entire course of her life?
1: I, I don't, I don't agree with that. Uh, I don't agree with that in part. So I, I think the reason why Tina Mucklow is a um, a focus of I don't want to say devotion, but uh, people people definitely focus on her, and she was a young, attractive woman, and she was the key witness in the case. So, just being a young, attractive woman, photogenic, and um, being in this high profile case and being the witness, I mean, the witness in the case would mean that men uh, who are interested in these these sorts of stories, sorts of true crime stories, would would be men, you know, would, would uh, find her, I don't want to say alluring, but interesting. I do not believe that she had a nervous breakdown. I think that um, her religious devotion, people have claimed that her religious devotion is some kind of mental illness. Now, I, as I've mentioned, I was an atheist. Uh, I have um, looked at Eastern philosophies and, and Western philosophies. And I think I have made the commitment to the Catholic Church that I don't, you know, talk about on, on Cooper's stuff all that often. But I don't believe that that religious views are in and of themselves mental illnesses, which some people do. So I think that the fact that she, you know, she entered um, an abbot and decided to spend some time of her life contemplating the, the bigger questions in the world has nothing to do with with the hijacking, it's just who she was. She was a very religious person to begin with. Um, The evidence for the nervous breakdown, I think, is very thin and is interpretive by other people. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that the most important witness in the case is afraid to talk about the case for fear of um, the attention that it brings.
0: I agree with everything you said there. Well, thank you. (laughs) I think it's sad that You know, Tina had this experience over the course of five and a half hours, and she did handle it well, and she came away from it and spoke about it, but I think the thing that, if I had to guess, that has ruined it for her is the attention that she's gotten for it. I think that the event that happened to her, and this is all my opinion, I've never spoken to her, the event that happened to her, I think it wasn't... That devastating for her, but the attention she got from it has been devastating.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure, and and for whatever reason, Flo Schaffner and Alice Hancock did not attract that same attention, and uh, I I think that we just looked we're, we're looking too much into it. So I think every member of that uh, flight crew handled this hijacking with extreme professionalism. Uh, the pilot, co-pilot, the engineer, each one of the stewardesses, they did their jobs, and they they did exactly what they needed to do, is that they gave the criminal what he wanted, and he gave him back the plane, and they landed safely, and that was that. So uh, I, I, I just can't get myself to say, and I, I just don't want to dwell on it. All right, I, I, It's unfortunate that we can't talk to Tina Mucklow or even Flo Schaffner, and interview them and ask them these questions that we have, but it's fine. I don't think if the information they had was going to solve the case, it would have solved the case. So we can leave them alone and we can focus on what we what we have, which is the uh, new information that we're that we're making that we're that we're finding.
0: That's very well said, Marty. I like that. If she had the information we needed to solve the case, we would have solved the case already. For sure. That's a great great point. I'm blown away by how smart you are sometimes. It's annoying. <laughs> I am so right, burdened next... <laughs>
1: by the knowledge I carry. <laughs>
0: our, our next question comes from Reddit. Uh, the handle is ishnolead, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Anyway, uh, what is your opinion on William J. Smith and Dan Clare's connection to the Gunther book?
1: So I'm, I'm very lucky that I made that mistake, because the mistake eliminates Dan Clare, or... LeClaire or whoever the person was that I found from being a a potential suspect. And that also means that that entire thing kind of falls apart, but that was all, that was all very speculative anyway, because you had, you know, um, Oh, this person knew Ira Daniel Cooper and this other guy, Smith worked for a railroad and he knew the new Cooper and he, you know, it, it just, uh, everything was was very speculative and all of these connections, none of them connected to the evidence. So you didn't have, you didn't connect uh, Smith to the, the particles on the tie because he didn't work in industrial chemicals. He didn't connect Smith to the Elsinore Paris Center. Uh, and you couldn't because he, he wasn't a skydiver. He wasn't interested. He didn't have that background. He wasn't in the Army, I think. Or if he was in the Army, he wasn't a paratrooper. I forget his exact background. So all of these things uh, were, were just coincidental. And if you look at your own life, do you know Cooper? You know what? I know a Dave Cooper, and he worked on my house. He was a contractor who, who, ex, who uh, did an addition on my parents' house. I went to school with, with him. Uh, Cooper, he was a Vietnam vet. He was a wounded Vietnam vet. So does that mean then that you can make, make the case that like my dad is DB Cooper. Like, well, no. All right, these are just coincidences uh, that that a Dave Cooper would know my dad, who had been to a, you know a paratrooper training. By the way, we have eliminated my father as a Cooper suspect. He was in Thailand. Uh, we have the documentation. Uh, he was also too tall. He was six foot five, uh, so much taller than Cooper was. So the answer is
0: no. Well, it, it can't good be good to know. It wasn't your dad?
1: Yeah, I had a. I eliminated my father and my grandfather in the course of my investigation.
0: Good work, good work. I, I though I assume you could have just asked them, but
1: well, my my grandfather had passed away, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I eliminated my uncle as well because he was, um, he was, he was actually in Nepal, so maybe he knew, maybe he knew Sheridan Peterson.
0: That would be hilarious.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a long story. I don't want to. I'll get in trouble if I, if I start talking about my family,
0: uh, fat kid down asks, what are the chances that the money was planted at Tina bar because of some kind of connection to Tina on the plane?
1: So I think I even wrote a blog post on that was probably the first blog post that I did back in 2016 or 17 or, or even before 20. No, I just I started this crap in 2014. That was six years ago. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. <laughs> so, yeah, 1st that was the first thing I wrote on the case, was the, the connection between Tina and Tina Barr. And the, at, at first I thought, based on the fact that it was three bundles and that they were buried together, I had this theory that Cooper was a gentleman hijacker, right? That's what we talk about. And he tried to tip the stewardesses. And Cooper, uh, and I had this idea that Cooper landed and at some point he felt very guilty that the wake that the uh, stewardesses or the, the the flight attendants did not take the tip. They were not given the money that they deserved for being so good to him. And that this guilt forced him that if he couldn't give the money to the stewardesses, he would at least not use it himself and bury it. And, he, and the fact that he buried it at Tina Bar would have been, Not a coincidence, but it would have been intentional to say that. Hey, this money was yours. I'm sorry, Um, and I didn't spend it. This this belonged to you. Thank you for you know what you did. I don't believe that anymore. That is not only is it wildly speculative, but the evidence, all of the physical evidence, has gone completely against it. And I think Tom Case research did, um, you know, did this idea in and uh, and right away so i i no longer hold to that theory it was and this is why i don't like to speculate because the more because you get caught in stuff like this this you get caught in speculation and it comes back to haunt you because if you do what you're supposed to and you follow the evidence to where it goes then uh, you can you look in the past and say okay i i didn't you know i, I was wrong you know i'm just going to keep following the evidence but people keep bringing it up and they keep bringing it up and everywhere you go um, you're tainted by it, so that is why I've tried to avoid. And I'm sure you've been frustrated by it. My unwillingness to speculate too heavily in the case, even in a case like this, that might require some speculation because there's so little evidence. The answer is no, no chance at
0: all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, I feel I feel, your... I
1: feel bad for your editor who has to try to figure out something to do with my ramblings. Uh,
0: I enjoy the ramblings. I don't I don't feel like you're rambling. I've had guests on that did ramble where we cut large sections out, but uh, I imagine not much will be cut out of this.
1: Yeah, see, that's the reason I ramble, too, is because when you do live radio, dead airtime is so awful that you just feel the need to keep talking. And I know we're using Zencaster, and I know we have audio tracks, and you're going to edit it, and all of these Awkward silences will be removed and it will be the, I I have to say your editor does a fantastic job because that first interview where I could barely talk was halfway decent only because of the work that your editor does. Uh, Fantastic. And and give him my utmost kudos for the work that he does.
0: Russell does a great job. All right. On to the next question. Chaucer, uh, I hope I'm saying his name right. Asks which of the three is the most important question to answer in regards to this case? What was the flight path? What was the drop zone? Or how and when did the money arrive on Tina Bar?
1: I don't think any of those questions are really pertinent anymore. <laughs> which is insane. I, I know that's insane. I know that's insane. But let's let's go through them. First of all, Tina Bar. Uh, some some eight year old kid finds some garbage on Tina Bar. We've been obsessed with it ever since. And we've done scientific analysis of it. And we really can't the, the best we can do now with the science we have is to say that in springtime, sometime before 1980, the money was in the water long enough to pick up diatoms. Like right? guess what? It it just doesn't help. Uh the flight path was important only in the sense that it gave us a place to look for Cooper's body, the money. Or Cooper himself. Well, we didn't find it. It's too late. He's gone. <laughs> wherever wherever he went, if he survived, he's gone. If he did not survive, the only place where he could have been uh, would have been next to a, a water, um, you know, a river of some kind. His body would have washed away, or he would have landed in the Columbia. So he's gone. If if we had if if his body had landed on solid ground, not next to a river, not gotten, we would have found it. Uh, there's too much development that's gone on. There was um, too much searching. There was a lot of uh, just, just tree harvesting. Now, I think I, I said this in our first interview. I took a piece of, of um, you know, a transparent, a transparent sheet, and I went on the old Google Earth. And every time I, you know, you go back in time with those satellite photos, and every time that you find um, a tree cutting, you know, where they, they harvest trees, you make a little dot where where that tree harvesting is, and there's just not anywhere where you can put a you know where you can put cooper that wasn't cut down, uh, that wasn't clear cut in some way or developed in some way. There's just there 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 might be a few places here and there, but there really wasn't anywhere to, uh, along the flight path. So the flight path not useful. Uh, what was the other one? The timing
0: drop zone.
1: The drop zone. Again, it would have been helpful in in. November of 1971. Not really helpful now. Maybe you could search the drop zone for his parachute, and that would be if you find if you found it, then that would be something. I personally think that the parachute was found and it was ignored by the FBI, but uh, because the colors didn't match, because they had the wrong information on that. But that's that's a can of worms and more speculation on my part. So none of those are very useful now. What's what's useful now is the tie and the other evidence um, that, that help us connect somebody to Cooper. The tie belonged to somebody, right? And if we identify the owner of the tie, in all likelihood, we will identify at least where Cooper came from, probably who Cooper was.
0: Last question. And this wasn't even a question for you, um, but I sort of reworded it into a question for you. So this comes from Mark B. via email. Am I doing a disservice to the case by promoting fringe theories like Cooper being transgender or the Zodiac Killer?
1: Yes. This case was enough of a circus before we had stuff like this, before we had the unified theory of unsolved crimes. And I I know, look, I I know that these people that, uh, I don't like to say bad things about people, so... I'm just not going to say anything about them. But I, I will say that if you treat this case seriously, then promoting certain suspects that are clearly not D.B. Cooper is a mistake. Now, let me qualify that, because when we're talking about uh, Barbara Dayton, so this, the, the, for conservative people, and I come from a very conservative area, the transgender issue is very unusual. Like it, it's not something that people are comfortable with. So you look, you look for somebody that people can connect to, right? Now, Bob Dayton, who became Barbara Dayton, was, you know, he was a um, a wartime um, wartime in the merchant marine, and he was a family man, and he was uh, he worked hard his entire life. He was a blue collar guy, and he had he just. He, his mind didn't fit his body and he went through and he did this surgery and became Barbara Dayton and then also had a good life um, and it it worked and so if you read the book on Barbara Dayton if you're a conservative person and Ron and Pat Foreman were in the Air Force and these are pilots tend to be very conservative not necessarily politically but just from a, um, a sort of psychological standpoint a pilot needs to be conservative because he needs to he needs to know what works and he does what the the traditional way of landing an aircraft is normally the right way because it works so pilots tend to be very conservative so in this world where it's difficult to find a transgendered person to to sit down and talk to a conservative about um barbara dayton is a very good person that book really helped me because I have struggled with this and I have a degree in psychology and I have been um you know I, I I was a I was a very conservative person, I'm now a very moderate person, and I've had to re-examine all of my personal beliefs over the years. And this one really helped me kind of understand and sympathize and empathize with somebody who was um going through a very difficult transition, but a very a very just difficult situation. And I want to say that, that definitely read Pat, uh, Ron and Pat Foreman's book. Uh, he's not D.B. Cooper. Robert Dayton is is not D.B. Cooper. But the book has a lot of value nonetheless.
0: Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes.
1: Yes. Yes. Get the second
0: edition. But you, you agree I am doing a disservice to this case by no. putting these people oh, on there.
1: I, I, I guess I don't mean you, even though you're the one giving these people the platform. Uh, I think I'm talking about the people themselves. So I I would just simply ask people to be reasonable, and that is a mistake in the era of the internet that we're in. To ask somebody to be reasonable and look at the evidence and uh, try to decide for themselves to to sh- <laughs> to not spout the craziest thing that comes into their mind, but. Uh, I would say it to those people who are supporting these theories that that is, you are so far off the mark that you are doing a disservice and uh, maybe there's entertainment, I, you know what, I'm just, I'm back to saying bad things about people. I don't want to do it. Um, I just, I guess I disagree vehemently and we'll leave it at that. I disagree vehemently.
0: But you believe that I am doing a disservice to the case.
1: <laughs> Darren God. Uh, you know what, you're just taking advantage of the fact that I am so tired that I can't think clearly. No, I don't think you're doing a disservice to the case. I just think that – because they have entertainment value. That's the thing. But I don't think of the D.B. Cooper case as entertainment. I think of it as a nightmare from which I cannot escape. And maybe that is why I feel, I feel ill will towards those who, who, um, who would spout such theories.
0: Okay, I'll accept that answer this time. You
1: are invited to my wedding, sir. I don't know when exactly it will be, but it will be next summer, and you will get a nice invitation. And if you don't want to come, I will not be insulted, but I, I want to just re- just say that I, I love the fact that you're doing these podcasts, regardless of what I think of the theories that are on the podcasts. Does that work?
0: That works. Do so I need I to apologize that,
1: further? Right. You can tell. You can tell because I I used to do this when I was in radio. I would say whatever the heck I thought about whatever person I was talking about, and I said really mean things. And I and that's just how you got along in radio. And I feel like I've been paying for it ever since. And maybe it's just some kind of longing for childhood that uh, this this need to attack all the people who bullied me over the years. Maybe it's that. I don't know. I was a fat little kid. I was a fat little kid <laughs> who got picked on a lot, and I turned into the big, strong football player, and my my fiancé just got home. So I, I turned into the big, strong football player, and I just wanted to get back at those elementary school boys. Well, are you doing it now? No, I'm a nice guy. I've changed. I got religion. <laughs> I'm trying to be kind to others and dogs and, and cats, so doing what I can.
0: Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you coming on the show tonight, Marty. It was really good to talk to you again.
1: Thanks for having me on. And if I insulted anybody, I apologize profusely.
0: If they would like to request a written apology from you, is there somewhere they could do that?
1: Certainly, certainly. They can go to my website. It's an old WordPress website, martinandrotti.wordpress.com. Otherwise, you can buy the book, and I have my email address in the book. Or if you know my name, you can Google me there. I'm on Twitter and I think I'm just on Twitter. Maybe, maybe, you know, more of my, uh, my internet presence, but I think I'm just on Twitter.
0: I believe you are on Twitter, but yeah, definitely. I would highly recommend anyone that thinks that Cooper never existed, that he never jumped or that he died in the jump. You have to get a copy of finding DB Cooper. So, you know the answers to those. That's how I figured it out. (laughs)
1: Thanks, Jared. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks again for coming on, Marty. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, sir. I enjoyed this thoroughly, except for the parts that I didn't.
0: Go pick up Marty's book. It's nine bucks on Kindle and 15 bucks for the real thing. He has a link to it on his blog, martinandrati.wordpress.com. And I've got links to it all in the show notes for you. Do you know something about this case that we don't? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. Instagram, at The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter, at dbcooperpodcast. Or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for Marty Andrade for coming on the show and for all the work he's done on this case. Thank you to Russell Colbert for inviting me to his wedding and for putting up with me. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.